By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks Focus on Finance. In today's episode, from London, my co-host Miles Nelligan will talk to Moody's insurance team analyst, Helena Kingsley-Tompkins, about the outlook for European insurers. Hi, Miles. Welcome back. Hi, Danielle. It's great to be here. So, Miles, can you give us the highlights from your discussion with Helena? What's the outlook for European insurance? Well, the European insurance outlook is, in fact, two outlooks in one. Uh, we have one for the European Property and Casualty or PNC insurance sector, uh, which is negative, uh, and then another for the European life insurance sector, which is stable. Got it. So two outlooks. What are the key drivers for each? Well, the biggest driver for the PNC insurance negative outlook is lower profitability because of rising claims costs. Now, some of that is related to consumer price inflation because the cost of, for example, spare auto parts is higher. Uh, But it's also related to higher losses from natural catastrophes and higher reinsurance costs. Okay, I see. And then what about life insurers? Well, uh, higher interest rates are always a big help for life insurers because they have a lot of guaranteed minimum return type policies. And uh, until very recently, their investment returns kept falling uh, because interest rates were very low. Right. Well, that's definitely reversed at least somewhat, right? Yeah, it appears to be moving in a, in, a, in a more positive direction. Miles, I am looking forward to your discussion with Helena in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for Fast Finance, where Moody's analysts give their credit views on topics in the news. Joining me now is Moody's analyst Joyce Ong, who's calling in from Singapore to talk about why Moody's outlook for Vietnamese banks is now stable when it was positive just a few months ago. Joyce, hi. Welcome to Focus on Finance. Thanks, Adele. Glad to be here. So, Joyce, back in September 2022, your fellow Moody's analyst, CJ Wong, was on the show explaining why the outlook for Vietnamese banks was positive. And the two main reasons he gave back then were first, the strong economy, and second, because he said Moody's expected Vietnamese banks' profitability to improve. And now the outlook has been shifted down to stable. What happened? Well, the main thing that happened is the liquidity crunch in Vietnam's real estate and construction sector in the fourth quarter of last year. So that's going to affect banks in two ways. First, a weakening of the bank's asset quality meaning the quality of their loans on their books would actually decline. So non-performing loans will increase because the banks have material exposure to the real estate and construction-related sectors. Second, the banks will also face higher competition for deposit funding. Uh, liquidity crunch uh, in Vietnam means the companies in the country would have to use their cash on hand to meet their own immediate cash flow needs. This then reduces the pool of corporate deposits available to banks. I see. So first, there's going to be a sort of drop off, a decline in loan performance, which is a problem for banks. And then 
Secondly, all these corporations that need money are going to be taking out their the money they have at the, the banks. So the more competition for deposits is going to mean uh, deposit rates are going to have to go higher to attract more depositors. That's right. Already we have seen deposit rate increase about 250 basis points in the second half of last year. We also seen um, interbank funding rates, meaning the rates at which banks lend to each other, increasing alongside. So these would lead to higher funding costs for the banks and plus higher credit costs because of uh, weaker loan performance, which we call weaker asset quality, will together reduce the bank's profitability. Right. So I, I get it, right? Weaker loan performance, meaning higher credit costs and also higher funding rates for banks. All of this means, you know, the picture is that the better profitability Moody's was expecting back in September. Maybe that's not going to happen. That's right. And before I ask you to explain just a little bit more about what happened in the real estate and construction sectors, because obviously it was something big. What about the economy? How is overall economic performance looking for 2023 in Vietnam? Well, the economy in Vietnam is still strong overall, even though the growth will be slower in 2023 because uncertainties in the global economy will weaken the demand for Vietnam exports. Uh, we are expecting GDP growth for Vietnam to remain quite robust in the range of 6 to 6.5% in 2023, somewhat lower than the 7 to 8% in previous years. This strong economy um, growth will help to offset some of the earlier mentioned um, asset quality and profitability issues that um, the banks are going to face because of stress in the real estate sector. All right. So... That's still a relatively strong economy, especially compared to elsewhere in the world. Thanks for that. Now, on to the real estate and construction sector. This is the heart of the story, I think, or a big part of it. What's happened there? Two things. A tightening of bond issuance rules by the State Bank of Vietnam, which basically made it more difficult for the Vietnamese companies to issue bonds and obtain financing. And secondly, there was a there was an anti-corruption crackdown in Vietnam, and we saw some high-profile arrests in the corporate sector, notably the arrest of a real estate executive in October 2022, shook investors' confidence and led to a bank run on a commercial bank in Vietnam uh, because of suspected links with the real estate company that was under investigation by the authorities. Now, the tighter rules for bond issuances plus the suspicions of misconduct and the arrests basically shook up market sentiments in the corporate bond market and triggered a liquidity crunch. And the real estate and construction sectors are most affected because they are the largest non-financial bond issuers. I see. So that's a real double whammy kind of for the real estate and construction sectors there, right? Investor confidence. Investors got spooked, basically. and then. There was this big liquidity crunch. So what does it all mean for banks? Well, what this means for banks is really that um, banks with large exposure to the real estate or have linkages to real estate companies would come under more scrutiny from the depositors and from the general public. On aggregate, banks in Vietnam have material exposure to real estate, construction and mortgages, about one third of their aggregate loan portfolio. 
Right, a third. So that's that's pretty big. And something you've said in a report you recently published on this, though, is that some banks have even more exposure than others. Is that right? Indeed. Um, some banks have more exposure than the others. We think private commercial banks in Vietnam are most at risk because private commercial banks tend to have chunkier credit exposure to the real estate and construction companies. And also because um, private commercial banks are much more dependent on interbank funding than state-controlled banks. This makes the private commercial banks more susceptible to funding and liquidity risk because interbank funding tends to dry up very quickly when markets are volatile and liquidity is tight. At the same time, we, we have also seen uh, interest rates for interbank borrowing tend to increase much faster than deposit rates which means that these private commercial banks that are heavily reliant on interbank borrowings will face a more rapid increase in cost of funds amid a rising interest rate environment. I see. Joyce, thank you so much for your insights. And we're now joined by Moody's analyst, Srikanth Vadlamani, also in Singapore, here to talk about stress at India's Adani Group and what it means for Indian banks. Srikanth, welcome. Hi, Daniel. Great to be here. So, Srikanth, most of our listeners have probably seen headlines about recent events at the Indian conglomerate Adani Group. But just to recap, equity and bond prices recently dropped sharply for the group following a short seller report that alleged stock manipulation and fraud at Adani. The companies denied the allegation, but its flagship unit, Adani Enterprises, still had to cancel a $2.5 billion share sale. So, you know, a big event. What does it mean for Indian banks? So we think the impact will be something that the banks can manage and two reasons for that. The most important being is that the exposure is around 1% of the loan book. So it is fairly limited in the context of the loan book size. It's also limited in the context of their improved capital buffers. The second reason is that it is exposed to operating assets. And that is a big difference compared to what we have seen with the Indian banks asset quality problems over the last decade. Because they are collateralized against operating assets, the ultimate loss given defaults, if at all the situation comes to that, is going to be lower. Having said that, what we are watching out for is how will the bank's exposure change in this in this changing circumstances. So for the Adani group, it is a question whether their access to the international markets, their access to other sources of funding is as strong as it was before. And if it is not, Indian banks will become the main source of funding. And hence, that may increase the risk. So that is the thing that we are watching out for. But as things stand, we think the risks are quite manageable. Got it. Thanks for that. So in summary, you know, at less than 1% of total loans for the, you know, most banks, that's not a very big exposure. So you're not too worried about it. However, you're watching out for what happens if the group becomes more dependent on banks as a source of funding. As you know, we just had Rebecca Tan on the show, uh, I mean, just last week, explaining why things were looking more positive these days for India's public sector banks. And to me, it sounds like that picture hasn't hasn't really changed much. It has not, and that's what we want to emphasize. Uh, Our view on corporate loans in general 
remains quite benign as far as asset quality is concerned. And both for cyclical and structural reasons. Cyclically, both banks and the corporates have been quite conservative over the last few years as a fallout of the intense issues that they had seen over the last decade. Structurally, measures such as the insolvency code, uh, enhanced supervision from the regulator, are, 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 have made lending to corporates structurally much more safer now than they were in the last decade. So our benign view on the broader corporate sector has not changed because of these developments. Got it. So in other words, what Rebecca said last week, that's pretty much all still true. What about spillover effects on other corporate borrowers, though, from the events at the Adani Group? Is that something that's possible? And and what would it mean for banks? So our base case is that because whatever is happening at Adani is highly idiosyncratic in nature, we are not really expecting significant spillover effects. But at the same time, we do note that the general funding environment, especially the external funding environment, has been quite tight over the last few months. So it is possible that the role of Indian banks in funding corporates will increase. And that will be broadly credit neutral. On the one hand, it will increase the funding needs of the Indian banks and put pressure on their funding profiles. But on the other hand, it will improve their pricing power, their ability to price loans that they give to corporates, which is positive for profitability. So net-net, on a broader credit profile perspective, we think it will be credit neutral. I see. So, you know, in other words, there is an advantage here, possibly, I mean, if companies are going to banks for funding more, if there's more demand, you know, the, the banks could charge higher rates and that'll allow them to protect their margins. Is that fair? Absolutely. Got it. Srikant, thank you so much. And we're now joined by my co-host, Miles Nelligan in London, here to talk to Moody's insurance team analyst, Helena Kingsley-Tompkins, about the outlook for European insurers. Thanks, Danielle and uh, Helena. Welcome back to Focus on Finance. Thanks, Miles. Very happy to be here. So, Helena, uh, Moody's outlook for the European insurance sector is negative for PNC insurance and stable for life insurance. Let's start with the PNC sector. Uh, what's happening there? Yeah, so the negative outlook is really driven by our expectation that the sector's underwriting profit will weaken over the coming year, following a, a decade of improvement. And this is because insurers are facing not only higher claims expenses and operating costs, which are, of course, being pushed up by inflation, but also higher reinsurance costs and uh, potentially a greater share of future catastrophe losses. Taken in combination, these factors will outweigh any increase in the sector's investment returns on the back of higher interest rates. Okay, let's take a closer look at claims. Um, is high consumer price inflation feeding directly through into, into higher PNC insurance claims? So consumer price inflation is not the same thing as claims inflation, but it has undoubtedly been fueling claims costs over the last 12 months or so. And this has been most evident in property and motor insurance where the rising cost of things like spare car parts and construction materials 
have driven a jump in claims expenses. But there are also other factors uh, at play. Most notably, motor accident frequencies are also trending back up towards pre-pandemic levels. Now, we expect that consumer price inflation has peaked and will fall gradually, but it will remain um, relatively high over the outlook period. So the upward trend in PNC claims still has some way to run. So, uh, so, so, so no immediate relief there. Um, you also mentioned higher reinsurance costs and also rising losses from natural catastrophes. Yes. So both of these are, are going to be challenges for the PNC sector. We know that demographic trends uh, together with urbanization uh, and climate change has been driving up weather losses over recent years, particularly from so-called secondary perils. So these are um, events like winter storms, uh, wildfires and floods. And over the last couple of years, Europe has suffered some unprecedented losses from exactly these type of events. Now, insurers routinely buy insurance for themselves to manage their risks. And to date, they have passed a fairly large portion of their weather losses to the reinsurance sector. So to players like Swiss Re uh, and Munich Re. But after six consecutive years of elevated catastrophe losses, reinsurers are taking some pretty drastic actions to improve their own profitability. Let me guess, they're putting their prices up. Yeah, exactly. And we saw some pretty sizable price increases during the the last January renewals, with pricing even in loss-free contracts that are not exposed to catastrophes jumping up 20 to 30%. And really, that's not all. Reinsurers are also uh, changing policy terms and conditions to reduce their own catastrophe exposures. So the net result for primary PNC insurers is both sharply higher reinsurance costs and the prospect of greater weather losses in the future. Well, you're certainly painting a fairly downbeat picture there, Helena. What's the industry doing to counteract the pressures you've described? So insurers' traditional response is to raise their own prices. The problem is that their ability to do so in the current economic climate is limited. European retail insurers in particular, so this includes you know, the big home and motor players, we think are really going to struggle to raise their rates sufficiently to offset inflation. It's really difficult to put prices up in the middle of a global cost of living crisis when households are are keen to save money. Competition is uh, definitely a further obstacle. And in some countries, regulators uh, and even governments are pressuring insurers to keep prices down. Let's look at some good news. You you mentioned earlier that the PNC sector is getting some uplift from higher interest rates. Yeah, so higher interest rates are positive for all insurers because they boost investment returns. As interest rates rise, insurers are able to invest new premiums uh, as well as proceeds from maturing instruments into high-yielding assets. Now, while the PNC sector's investment portfolios are fairly short-dated to to match their short-term liabilities, the rise in investment returns will still be gradual, and these gains are therefore unlikely to be big enough to offset the underwriting pressures that, that we've been discussing. Well, thanks, Helena, for that overview of the PNC sector. Um, why don't we now pivot seamlessly to the European life insurance sector, where we have a stable outlook? And I assume that 
points to slightly more favourable conditions in that market? Yes and no. So life insurers are not exposed to inflation in the same way as the PNC market, but they are, of course, benefiting from the associated interest rate rises. And we think um, this could finally start to reverse the multi-decade long decline in life insurers' investment returns. And this is particularly important for European life insurers, many of which still have large traditional savings portfolios with with high guarantees. So rising rates uh, reduce the risk that insurers' investment returns fall below these guarantees and start to er erode capital. So despite, I guess, the bleak economic outlook and rising investment risk, thanks to the high interest rates, we are able to maintain a stable outlook on the European life sector. So Helena, I want to come back to this, uh, the, the bleak economic picture you painted here. With this subdued economic growth, is that going to perhaps impact growth prospects for some of these European life insurers? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Life revenues and earnings are indeed impacted by uh, the economic climate. And we think this will be most notable for unit linked savings. So these are products which essentially allow individuals to combine their money, which is then invested into a fund and the investment profits are shared among the policyholders. Now, the performance of these funds is going to decline. And this is because rising interest rates and market volatility have eroded the value of the underlying assets. And this in turn will also impact insurers' fee income. Now, at the same time, unit-linked cash inflows will remain under significant pressure, particularly in retail segments, as consumer confidence falls and people struggle with rising living costs. Got it. So overall, yes, the answer is is it's going to have a big impact. But what about differences by country? Yeah, gross prospects do uh, certainly vary by country and also line of business. So for example, pension pots have also shrunk in value. But pension contributions, unlike unit linked flows, are relatively resilient even in an economic downturn. And we think will benefit from low unemployment and rising wages in a number of markets like the UK and Germany. There are also some reforms taking effect in France and the Netherlands, which we think will support the expansion of that market. But the one line of business that really stands out in terms of growth prospects is the UK bulk purchase annuity sector where we think demand, which is being supported by rising interest rates and corporates' appetite to offload their pension risks, is very likely to um, outstrip insurance capacity over the next 12 to 18 months. Got it. Helena, thank you so much. Miles as well. Thank you both very much for your insights. And thank you also to Joyce and Shrikanth. And A big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to dive deeper into any of the topics covered on today's episode, you can just click the link to the show notes for the episode at moody's.com slash podcasts. And if you're listening to us on your favorite streaming platform, please remember to follow or subscribe. And please tune in again soon for future episodes of Focus on Finance.
Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts. 